All across America and around the world, this is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. And now, your host for today's program, Dale Throneberry. Yes, my name is Dale Throneberry. I get to be the host today. I was a CW2 helicopter pilot in Vietnam in 1969, the United States Army Aviation, above the best. And that's what we're going to be talking about today is uh, above the best. These men um, who served during the Iraq-Afghanistan wars, who went above and beyond the call of duty. It's just, uh, just uh, as you know, here on Veterans Radio, we have talked, we've had the privilege of talking to many Medal of Honor recipients from World War II through Korea to Vietnam and now into Iraq and Afghanistan. And every one of these people that we have had the privilege of talking to always talks about not necessarily they're being awarded the Medal of Honor, but they talk about the responsibilities that come with it. And uh, this is some of the things that we're going to be talking to today uh, with our guest, uh, uh, James Kitfield. But before we get to... Mr. Kitfield, I've got to talk about some of our sponsors here. As you may or may not know, Veterans Radio is a nonprofit organization, and we stay on the air thanks to your donations and other corporate donations that are out there uh, to pay our expenses. And so, number one, I want to make sure that we thank uh, Legal Help for Veterans. Legal Help for Veterans is a, a loyal... Legal Help for Veterans is a law firm specializing in veterans disability claims. For more information, you can call Legal Help for Veterans at 800-693-4800. The National Veterans Business Development Council, better known as NVBDC, these is the, these are the nation's leading third-party authority for certification of veteran-owned businesses. For more information, go to their website nvbdc.org. The Eisenhower Center in Michigan and Florida specializes in treatment for veterans, first responders, athletes, anyone who is suffering from post-traumatic stress, a TBI, or any other uh, form of closed head injury. For more information, you can contact the Eisenhower Center through their website. That's EisenhowerCenter.com. Or you can give them a call at 800-554-5543. 800-554-5543. And the Charles S. Kettles VA Medical Center here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. We can't uh, thank them enough for their support over the years, and we're looking forward to their support in the future. And, of course, yours are listening. We're hoping that you would be more than willing to jump in and with uh, a little support there as well. Just go to our website. That's veteransradio.net, and click on Support Veterans Radio. Okay. Well, as I was reading this book, uh, In the Company of Heroes, and, and thinking about all of these amazing men who are in a volunteer army to, fig- to begin with. And I, I, I don't know about you, but uh, that takes a lot of courage right there, I think. And uh, their missions that they had, uh, especially in Afghanistan that I've been reading about, of course, in Iraq and Fallujah, and, and the stories that we've heard about um, these men on Veterans Radio, actually, uh I just had to get a hold of this book. And so I want to bring on the author of In the Company of Heroes. His name is James Kitfield. He is a senior national security and foreign affairs correspondent for the National Journal Magazine. He has written on defense, national security, and foreign policy issues from Washington, D.C. for over two decades. 
He has written about the uh, wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and he's been reporting from the Middle East, Asia, Latin America, Africa. Seems like you've been everywhere, so I want to welcome and just get you right on the air. So, James Kitfield, welcome to Veterans Radio. It's great. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Thank you very much for uh, agreeing to be on the program. As I was reading through the book and about, you know, the, the, all this, the SEALs and the combat controlled guys from the Air Force and, you know, Marines, everything else that is out there. Uh, how, how did you get involved in this particular story? Well, as you mentioned, I, I've covered these uh, conflicts from their inception, so for a couple of decades, uh, but for uh, mostly for National Journal, um, which is kind of a policy magazine. Um, so my reporting was typically talking to the generals and the senior leadership about you know how they thought their strategies were being implemented, et cetera. But I was always struck by the young men and women who served so so courageously on the front lines, and I of course ran across them many times over my reporting trips, and wanted wanted an opportunity to tell their stories um, because it's so it's, it's their lives that are most directly impacted by these strategic decisions that I that I'd covered for so long. Uh, and I got an opportunity. The Navy Department reached out to me. The, the most recent Medal of Honor recipient at that time, a couple of years ago, was a Navy SEAL named Britt Slabinski. And I just, in, in the interviewing Britt Slabinski, I, I was just so uh, amazed at, at the story. It was almost Homeric in its kind of dimensions. And, and, and there's all these decision points where each time, you know, Slabinski and his whole team, you know, could have done the easy and the safer thing. And they chose to do the hard and dangerous thing because it meant going back up on a mountain and getting a fallen comrade. And I was just, uh, just so, so inspired by the drama and, but also from the, from the courage that these men, uh, to a person showed that I, I wanted to tell more stories like this. Well, I mean, his story is, 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 <laughs> they're all amazing stories. I mean, they just make the hair on the back of your neck stand up every time you read them. And, uh, I mean, the interesting thing about um, uh, Mr. Slabinski is that he is, I guess you could say his friend, John Chapman, received his Medal of Honor for the same battle, isn't it? Right. And that's, and that's pretty rare, although there are three, three battles uh, depicted in the book where there are not one but two uh, service members received the Medal of Honor, which is exceedingly rare um, looking back in history. And um, so, yeah, that, that's very rare. Um, and they were, they were bunkmates in the, in their tent in the special forces camp. Uh, used to play chess all the time, you know, to, to take their minds off the war. And, uh, it was just heart, it was heartrending because, uh, they lost, we, they lost John Chapman up on top of that mountain and, uh, thought he was, he was shot and killed. It turns out, uh, a drone captures him. He was, he was knocked out, but he was not killed. Woke up and fought bravely for another 20 minutes and eventually, sacrificed his life, left, left his fighting position to get, lay down cover for a quick reaction force helicopter that was coming to try to rescue him. Um, so it was, you know, these stories are full of, 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 of bravery, but also heart-rending tragedy as well. And um, it's, it's part and parcel of, of these stories. You can't get away from it. No, no, you, you really can't. Um, I, w- I was thinking before we were going on the air, we had a, a, Medal, of, a Medal of Honor recipient here in our local area, uh, Charles Kettles was a helicopter pilot in Vietnam and he had received a, uh, I think it was a, you know, number two, <laughs> the number two medal, a service medal. Service cross, I think, probably. 
Right. Finally got it upgraded when he only less than a year before he passed away. But he was probably, and you mentioned this in the book, and this is kind of a common theme that, that runs through all of these men that you've talked about here, how humble he was about, you know, the award to begin with, which, you know, everybody looks up to. He can't help but look up to it. And that he, he always gathered his whole crew around him whenever he was talking about what occurred on the day that, you know, he earned the, the Medal of Honor is he always talked about his crew and how he could never have done it without them. And this seems to be a, a running theme throughout all of these that they could not accomplish their missions without the teamwork that was involved. And when I, when I said at the beginning of the program, you know, that I was part of Army Aviation and we, you know, the motto is above the best. I, I didn't even really appreciate that myself until I started talking through Veterans Radio, really, to all those men and women who have been on the ground. Cause those, I mean, that is really where everything happens. Sure, and you and you mentioned uh, that is a common thread through these stories is this humility these these individual, remarkable individuals show, and you know the comment was made more than once to me that uh, you know although this is a, a great honor, it's also a very weighty burden because it reminds that these individuals of the worst day of their lives when they lost friends and comrades and brothers in arms, and and just saw horrific things and and, and had to do extraordinary things to survive. Um, but they 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 bear that burden because they want to bring attention to their teammates and their colleagues and their brothers in arms, and so there are oh, there's 25 in, individual stories here of Medal of Honor recipients. But it's not just stories of them; it's stories of their units and their teams. Because without exception, um, it, the teams show just extreme extreme valor. Uh, these yes, these these individuals stood out, but but they are you know. The, the company of heroes reflected in this book is not just a Medal of Honor recipient, it's just many of the service members around them who had their back. Right, yeah, there's a lot of great side stories that you bring into this. Uh, we're, we're talking with James Kitfield. He's the author of In the Company of Heroes. It's the inspiring stories of Medal of Honor recipients from America's longest wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And, um, in fact, I'm, I'm going to read, there's a quote on the back cover here. And this is from uh, General David Petraeus, former commander of the surge in Iraq, U.S. Central Command Coalition Forces in Afghanistan and former director of the CIA. And he says, a tremendous tribute to the bravest of the brave in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, James Kitfield's In the Company of Heroes is a dramatic and, thro- and enthralling reminder that even in the toughest of times in the post-9-11 wars, the extraordinary men and women in uniform who fought America's longest wars never backed down from the enemy, never quit on the mission, and most important, always remained true to each other. This important book describes brilliantly why those of us why those of us privileged to lead our men and women in combat truly consider them America's new greatest generation. I cannot recommend it too highly. That's from General Petraeus. And I was, you know, I was listening to some of the other interviews that you, that you have given. And this is a kind of a topic that comes up because of the withdrawal from Afghanistan that was so chaotic. Um, that some of these people are, are, or some of these men and women are, pr- are probably suffering from post-traumatic stress just from the idea that we didn't accomplish our mission. Yeah, I, you know, uh, to a person, and I've written a lot recently in, in my journalistic 
hat about the withdrawal from Afghanistan and how it went so wrong. But it, it suffice to say, I mean, it, it is a gut punch to all who served there. I mean, the, the scene that it's it's bad enough pulling out, but it, to see the Taliban rolling behind you was just it was just heartbreaking for for those who you know lost blood, sweat, and tears over there. Um, and and there's no doubt that if this will cause them to you know re relive you know some of the worst days of their lives, and so um, you know the question was asked of me a number of times. You know, so what what we did, what we sacrificed, was it in vain? My answer was always no. Uh, I was in Washington D.C. as a national security correspondent on 9/11, and spent the next you know five to ten years in in engrossed in trying to understand how we got hit like that, who did it, why, uh, and understand everything about al-Qaeda. And I can tell you personally, for all the many counterterrorism experts I, I spoke with in and out of government thought we were going to be hit again with successive 9-11-type terror spectaculars in the years to come. And we, we weren't hit again like that because we sent our service members over to fight the terrorists where they were home-based. And that meant going to Afghanistan, toppling the Taliban, decimating the top uh, leadership of al-Qaeda, including Osama bin Laden. It meant after the Iraq invasion, fighting al-Qaeda in Iraq and decimating that organization and killing its leader, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. And we also um, decimated the leadership and decimated the caliphate of the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. So those, all of those groups want nothing more than to strike a 9-11-type blow against the West. And the reason they weren't able to is because we had pressure on them. They were constantly looking over their shoulders, having to wonder if we were coming to get them. And that's what kept us safe. So that is that is not in vain. That service kept us safe. The question, you know, the, the withdrawal from Afghanistan raises, will we be able to continue to keep the country safe now that that region is now uh, pretty fertile ground for them to lay roots again? And we, we will find out about that. Yeah, that's, it's, that's, that's always the issue. And, you know, when we leave these places is what happens to the people that are left behind. And, we, you know, we can see some of the results from what news is coming out of Afghanistan. And, and, um, you know, I, I keep flashing back, of course, to, to Vietnam when we were, when we were out of there in 75 and, you know, who we had left behind with that. But that's, that's getting way off topic. And I'm, I apologize for that, uh, James. Um, let's go back to the Medal of Honor. Um, let's talk about a little bit about the history of the Medal of Honor. How did, how did this award come about? It started, it was started by, um, President Lincoln during the Civil War, wanted to honor, um, it, 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 originally it was just for, uh, NCOs and enlisted personnel, but it was expanded in 83 to include officers as well, just in time for Chamberlain, who led the, the bayonet charge down a little round top, uh, to save the flank of the Union line during the, during the Battle of Gettysburg to, to receive the Medal of Honor. And after, and from then on, um, you know, in every war we've had, uh, there have been Medal of Honor recipients showing from showing you know this extraordinary valor, and that you know right up through World War One and World War Two, Korea, uh, Vietnam, uh, and, and and now the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's just that when you when you have uh, you know hand you know face to face combat, um, some some people will distinguish themselves uh, in, in those situations, and we you know the, the services want to draw attention to that because. Those people are exemplary, and they want to uh, they want to show the bravest of the brave, as General Petraeus said. 
Right. And it's, it's not the easiest award to, to, to be given because of there are, I guess, uh, the, the rules and, and regulations that go behind it because they're, they're supposed to be witnesses and, uh, you know, written statements and so on and so forth, aren't there? Right. So it's a, it's a very involved process, which is why in, in many cases there's years pass before, between the, the action itself and, and the receiving of the award. Um, and, uh, so it, it, your, your chain of command has to recommend a service member for the Medal of Honor. Uh, it has to go up through the chain of command, uh, an investigate, if they think it's, it's, it indeed is worthy, they'll launch an investigation that talks to witnesses, interviews witnesses, looks at all the data from the battle. Um, and, and these wars, there's obviously a lot more data because we have full, full video in some cases of these wars because there's surveillance drones circling overhead. Um, but it, it goes up to the, this investigation. Then finally, the Secretary of Defense has to sign off on it. And the, and the final decision is the President of the United States makes the decision, and, and the awards are, are given at the White House. Um, so it's a, it's a quite involved process. It's not, uh, it's not something that's done lightly. No, not at all. And, and in your, your book, you mentioned that um, you had the privilege, I guess you could say, of going to a Medal of Honor uh, reunion where uh, I mean, there aren't that many left. No, I, and, and uh, yeah, there was, there, they have each year the Medal of Honor Society holds its annual uh, meeting. Um, the one you're referring to was held at the, at the Naval Academy a couple of years ago, um, but I went to the one uh, just before COVID, uh, which was in Tampa. And it's a chance to honor all of these individuals, and they go out and speak to local schools. And, uh, you know, it's just, you know, it, it is the most exclusive fraternity in the world. Um, and uh, so people are just flocked to be able to meet these people, and, uh, and, and for good reason. They're just extraordinary individuals, like you said, for all of their accomplishments and, and, and achievements there. They remain a very humble crowd. Uh, I should also say that a lot of them have, have been very public about their own struggles with post-traumatic stress mental issues. And, um, you know, they're the bravest of the brave, but they, they talk about this because they want, um, they want, you know, veterans and other combat veterans and service members to seek out help when they are uh, trying to, to cope with their own uh, post-traumatic stress. And now would be a good time, if, I, if you don't mind, I can give the number out for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, um, oh, which is right 800. Ahead. I have it sitting here in front of me, too. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's 800-273-8255. Um, that's the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. So these, these individuals, almost to a person, have suffered post-traumatic stress. I mean, if you, and you read these stories, uh, you, you understand why, what, the, what they've been through, what they've seen, what they've lost. Um, and, and they, they are very open about those struggles because, uh, which in one example, uh, was an attempted suicide himself, one of these Medal of Honor recipients, um, Dakota Meyer. Um, uh, they want, they want those stories out too because they think that, that you know, it, it's, a, they want to get rid of the stigma about seeking help for post-traumatic stress because they've all been through it. Absolutely. And I think, I, I think the other thing probably is they don't want people thinking of them as, as, you know, Superman and, you know, that they're, they're above the fray, but they're not. They're just, you know, as, as we always say, you know, they're just ordinary people who did extraordinary things in, in the service of their country. And I, I, I just can't remember the particular story where the, the Medal of Honor recipient, another one of his team members after the, 
after the battle and everything, everybody came home that did eventually, unfortunately, did commit suicide. And, uh, um, you know, for our audience out there that's, that's listening right now, we're all very familiar with the number 22 a day. And even though that has dropped minusculely, if that's a word, um, there's still over 20 veterans a day that are committing suicide. And so we have to, we have to make sure that they're aware that help is out there and that it is not, it is not wrong to seek out that help. And, and every one of these stories that I've read in this book talk about, uh, the survivors that are talking about, yes, seek help. You, you know, we, can, you know, we can't fight these battles by ourselves. That's exactly right. I mean, and, and these individuals are, are very outspoken about, again, what they've been through because they want other combat veterans to know that there's help out there and there, there's, you know, the bravest of the brave need help too. And they want to make sure that if you, if people need that kind of help, that they, they seek it out because, uh, you're right. You can't, you can't fight those battles alone. No, not at all. I, I want to read another quote here. It's uh, This is from uh, Stanley McChrystal, General Stanley McChrystal. And he says, every generation must do its part. And fortunately, heroes emerge. In his fascinating account, James Kitfield shares stories that will inspire Americans of this and future times. And I think we'd better get into this, some of these stories. Um, and I know I asked you earlier if, if you had any that you pr- would prefer to talk about or that you want to talk about. Well, you know, it's like choosing between yeah. your children, right? There's there's 25 just unbelievable stories in this book. Each one of these individuals is extraordinary in their own right and did extraordinary things. I'll talk a little bit about Britt Slavinsky since he started uh, that interview started me on this journey, if you will. So he was a he was in Afghanistan as a young SEAL team leader um, in 2002, so very early in the post 9/11 wars. And they had, uh, if you'll remember, an initial um, a battle in Tora Bora. They had, Al-Qaeda had been allowed to, Osama bin Laden and his lieutenants had been allowed to uh, basically get away into Pakistan because we had trusted some local warlords to, to close the noose around it. So this battle was to, to, was to had singled out a, a group of Al-Qaeda's that were in the mountains, and they were trying to, to close the net on them. He was uh, in charge of an overwatch Team, and they were inserted at night on top of this mountain. Uh, snow in the middle. This is in February. It's snow drifts up there, freezing cold. Uh, they, because of a, a screw up in, in timing, they can't uh, disembark. You know, and, and sneak into their their Overwatch position. They have to. The helicopter has to drop them off right at the top of the mountain. Helicopters ambushed. And in the ambush, trying to get out of it, and you as a helicopter pilot would understand this is miraculous. They, they 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 took RPG hits. Um, they did get out of it and, and crash landed a few miles away. But in the in the confusion, one of the seals uh, falls out of the back of the helicopter. So they've crashed. You know, before, before even sun sunrise, they crash landed in a helicopter. Got taken back to. They've been ambushed. They've lost a man, and they got to go. They go back to base. And Britt Slabinski, you know, this is one of those decision points, has to decide, you know, do I risk my whole team in what is certainly going to be a suicide mission to go rescue, um, you know, uh, the Navy SEAL Roberts, Neil Roberts, or, or, or do I just say that that's, you know, I, or do I, you know, save my team? Because it was clearly going to be something like a suicide mission. The Al-Qaeda group on top of the mountain was bigger than they were, um, dug in, and they would be fighting uphill and through snowdrifts. 
and yet they decided to go back and, and he, he announced that decision to his team and to a person, including John Chapman and, and all, all five of them, you know, shook their head and said, let's go get them. And knowing what their odds were and they weren't good. And indeed, when they went back up, the helicopter again is, is ambushed. They get out this time. They, they fight really fiercely. Um, but John Chapman is hit and presumed dead. Another Navy SEAL shot through the leg would, would lose that leg. So he's a, a, ca- a major casualty. They have to retreat off that mountain, uh, or at least down the mountain. Um, but as I said before, the drone catches the firing position where John Chapman was laying unconscious for 12 minutes. He starts moving around and then starts fighting fiercely. And in, some, in a couple of cases, hand-to-hand combat as he held off this al-Qaeda group, um, almost out of ammunition when the quick reaction force helicopter uh, appears to, to try to rescue him, and he exposes himself to uh, what he knew was mortal danger to try to lay down fire for that helicopter, and he's killed. So just a just a heartrending, tragic story, but full of inspiring, uh, you know, men who live by decree. We leave none of of our own behind, and uh, and there's inspiration in that that I wanted to share with readers. Uh, and there's there's 25 stories like that. Exactly. And that, that's something that is instilled in you from their first day of basic training, I think, is that you never leave anyone back out on the field. Um, I can think of <laughs> so many missions where, where, where we would go back to try and find people. And, you know, the helicopter pilots that received the Medal of Honors in, in, from Vietnam, uh, were all going back to pick up people that were still on the ground. And you can't leave them. That's just the way it is. And these mountains that you were talking about in Afghanistan are not, these are 15, 16,000 foot up. Foot yes. Up? The Hindu Kush <laughs> is, is, you know, if it, if it wasn't for this conflict, it'd be, I've heard this comment by many people who served there, just some of the most beautiful mountains in the world, but they are, they have some of the most remote valleys, you know, valleys where the inhabitants have never even seen the people in the next valley, much less American troops. So we spent, you know, probably five or six of these stories are from units that we put up deep in these mountains to to try to, try to sort of plug the infiltration routes that the Taliban and al-Qaeda were using to come from the Pakistan sanctuaries into Afghanistan. And uh, that those, th- those stories are harrowing because the, they are typically outnumbered, surrounded by these, these wily mountain fighters who grew up in those mountains, um, and they are very hard to be reinforced and very hard to get air cover because they're so remote, and uh, there are just a, a number of, of really, really dramatic battles in those uh, in the Hindu Kush, um, just, just just really heart-rending stuff because, uh, because it was the, probably the toughest terrain on earth to, to try to fight in. I know, and they were out there in such small... Uh, fire support bases are, you know, their bases were not very big at all. No, and if you'll remember, this was when, this is largely, it was when, uh, you know, the Iraq war was, was not going well. So we had to siphon off the majority, but the, the Iraq war was the major effort. Afghanistan was like a holding mission. Right. And because of that, they didn't have anything like the heavy lift helicopters, the, the ISR in terms of surveillance drones. Um, they were short-handed and, and they were short-equipped, and, uh, and, and in these terribly remote places, and, and often outnumbered, because the Taliban can, can choose when to mass its forces uh, on one of these remote bases. 
So that that was a tactically really, really difficult duty in those mountains. And uh, eventually after the last one, Cop Keating, which is another one of these famous conflicts, uh, battles where there were two uh, Levana recipients from that same battle, they were very nearly overrun. There was inside the, the enemy got inside the wire, killed a lot of Americans, and uh, they, they, they were just able to fight them off. Uh, uh, but after that, the... The U.S. military put all our, our forces out of those mountains and, and bombed them, dead. and to, to not let the equipment fall into the hands of the enemy. But they realized they did. They were just putting putting these units in really indefensible positions. Yeah, and some of them, their, their positions were outrageous. I mean, when I think it's that story you were talking about, where the, the the base was between the mountains, it was in the valley. Everything was above you. Right. <laughs> it was that was Cop Keating. Yeah, but they called it the fishbowl because everyone. And, and, yeah. One of one of the Medal of Honor recipients said, looked up and said, "You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna have a very sore neck after this year deployment because I'm constantly looking up this whole time." And they were, and they were they were you know shot at by snipers so regularly that they were afraid to, to in daylight to even go to the latrine. They they had to wait till night to, to crawl to the latrine because there were so many uh, snipers and in, in, in hiding in the rocks on the mountainsides. So gives you an idea of how uh, what kind of duty that was. We're talking right now with uh, James Kitfield. He's the author of In the Company of Heroes, the Inspiring Stories of Medal of Honor Recipients from the Iraq and Afghanistan Wars. We have to take a quick break. So, James, if you'll stick around. Uh, actually, this is where we pay a little respect to one of the Medal of Honor recipients that is in your book, and that is going to be Paul Smith. So uh, you're listening to Veterans Radio, and we'll be right back after this short break. Medal of Honor is the highest award for valor in combat given a member of the Armed Forces of the United States. There have been over 3,400 recipients of the nation's highest award. This is one of them. Sergeant First Class Paul Smith gave his life to protect his troops. Details after this. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. On April 4, 2003, a call went out for a place to put some Iraqi prisoners. Sergeant First Class Paul Smith volunteered to create a holding pen inside a walled courtyard. Soon, Iraqi soldiers, numbering perhaps 100, opened fire on Smith's position. Smith was accompanied by 16 men. Smith called for a Bradley, a tank-like vehicle with a rapid-fire cannon. It arrived and opened up on the Iraqis. The enemy could not advance so long as the Bradley was in position. But then, in a move that baffled and angered Smith's men, the Bradley left. Smith's men, some of whom were wounded, were suddenly vulnerable. Smith could have justifiably ordered his men to withdraw. Smith rejected that option, thinking that abandoning the courtyard would jeopardize about 100 GIs outside, including medics at an aid station. He manned a 50 caliber machine gun atop an abandoned armored personnel carrier and fought off the Iraqis, going through several boxes of ammunition. As the battle wound down, Smith was hit in the head. He died before he could be evacuated from the scene. The Medal of Honor series is a production of Veterans Radio. Military veterans touch everyone's life. I'm guessing right now you're thinking of a veteran, a close friend, relative, maybe it's you. Even the toughest of us sometimes need help but don't know where to turn for support. You don't need special training to help a veteran in your life. 
We can all help someone going through a difficult time. Learn how you can be there for veterans. Visit VeteransCrisisLine.net. VeteransCrisisLine.net. A message from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. We're back here on Veterans Radio, and uh, we are talking with James Kitfield, and uh, the author of In the Company of Heroes, uh, the Medal of Honor recipients from Iraq and Afghanistan. And that Medal of Honor that just played was um, about Paul Smith. And I just wanted to read a, a paragraph from the end of the, the chapter on Paul Smith in here called The Gates of Baghdad. And it's evidently when uh, uh, Paul Smith's belongings were sent home, his parents found a letter that he had written from Iraq but had never mailed it. And in it, he told his parents how proud he was of the privilege to be given 25 of the finest Americans we call soldiers to lead into war. And then Paul Ray Smith made a pledge to put their welfare first, which he would honor with his life. He was prepared, Smith wrote, to give all that I am to ensure all of my boys make it home. Uh, and this is a, a, like a common story for all of these Medal of Honor recipients, uh, James. Yes, that, that, yeah, that's exactly right. And, and the, the, the thread that runs through all these stories is people who are selfless, uh, and when they had a brush with eternity, instead of doing the safe thing, they, they put their lives on the line uh, in order to, to, to save their buddies. There were at least there were seven, I believe, that were actually threw themselves on a grenade or, or tackled a suicide bomber to, to absorb the blast and protect uh Protect their brothers in arms, knowing that they would they were about to die, and uh, but but they went ahead and did it. Uh, and you know, certainly Paul Smith. I was I was actually embedded with the small headquarters element, tactical headquarters element, right behind his unit, and so that was in the, inv- the original invasion of Iraq. And I mean that that his engineering battalion just did amazing things. They they captured a, con- a contested bridge. And, uh, you, you know, waded into the water and, and were cutting the wires of the demolition that the, that the Iraqis, Republican guard types had put on the bridge to blow it up. Um, so they were just, they were, they were a, a quieter unit. And at that Air Force battle, that, the, Air, the Baghdad airport was from the very beginning the place where we were going to try to capture and then launch the, you know, the, the battle for Baghdad, if you will, from the airport uh, complex. And, you know, he was, he, that, that little courtyard that he set up and was going to be for prisoners, um, that turned out to be the flank of, of the, the unit that was fighting to, to capture the airport. So if he had allowed the Iraqi Republican guards to sweep through them, he would have jeopardized the whole, the, the flank of the whole effort to capture the air, the air force. So he, uh, the airport, I should say. So he was, uh, he, he was an amazing guy and, uh, he was, he was determined that they would, they would go no further than, than him and his uh, 50 caliber machine gun on top of a armored personnel carrier that was disabled. So he couldn't even, he couldn't even pull that out of the field of fire if he had wanted to. Um, and he never left. He just said, keep feeding me the, keep feeding me bullets and I'll keep firing. Um, so he was, he was a, a, an extremely heroic sergeant. It was, and you were, you were talking about the, uh, couple of people who, Jumped on brigade or on, on grenades. And I'm, you know, we, we have another one of our uh, Medal of Honor segments to, uh, where we talk about Ross McGinnis. Can you talk about what he did? Ross McGinnis. Well, um, I'm trying to remember right off the top of my head. Oh, so he was, um, he was in Iraq 
uh, his, his, uh, you know, fighting in a, what they call sort of the really, really rough part of, of Baghdad that I've, I've actually been through myself. Wouldn't, wouldn't want to go back again. And they were in a convoy. He was, the, he manned the machine gun on top of a, a Humvee. And so he's the gunner and they turn a corner, you know, down a dusty street. And someone dropped a, a grenade uh, through the, the, you know, through the, the his turnstile, if you will. Um, and at that point, uh, he was the only one in, in, in this armored Humvee who could get out. He could have just hopped out the top because he was standing up, you know, behind his machine gun. Instead of that, he drops down into the into the the Humvee and uh, basically captures the grenade against the bulwark with with his, uh, you know, his body armor. Knowing that that was that was going to be the last thing he ever did, uh, but he saved every one of his uh, he saved everyone else in that Humvee uh, by that heroic sacrifice of his own life. I, I can't I just can't believe what these these people did. Uh, we we talked with uh, Flo Groberg on Veterans Radio back in December of 2017, and he his Medal of Honor was received for for basically tackling a suicide bomber. Um, who was trying to get to a, I believe it was a, a general or some brigade commander or something along those lines and pushed him aside and the, the vest went off. Yeah. And, and right? you know, Flo's a, a great guy. And, uh, uh, yeah, he, he, he not only tackled this, the suicide bomber, but he, um, you know, he went through just incredibly difficult. Uh, rehabilitation. He lost most of his, one of his legs. You know, he had been a kind of a, a standout track star in college. He's an immigrant. Uh, and, uh, yeah, his story just was just amazing how he, he, he found his inner warrior again, uh, that allowed him to, 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 to press through really excruciating rehabilitation and become this really, you know, interesting entrepreneurial guy who uh has a great life but uh it was the story of how he struggled i mean the survivor's survivor's guilt that he suffered uh almost drove him crazy uh and he admits this in his book and he's and uh and at his lowest point another one of the uh soldiers at walter reed who had lost i believe uh all both arms and both legs came to him and said you know Look, I know you're having a bad time. There's, there's people in, in this hospital who have it even worse than you, and you need to you need to rediscover your your warrior. And and he and Pro Goldberg said that, that that person saved his life. So it just it, that's another one of the stories in there that uh, just shows you how these people all have each other's back, and uh, and and really showed amazing courage and coming to each other's aid when it mattered most. I, th- I think it's really uh, interesting and and in just. I don't know, awe-inspiring when you when you think about, it, especially some of the ones that that did survive. You you talked about um, in the book. You're talking about Corporal uh, Kyle Carpenter, um, and and we had the privilege of talking with him back in December of 2019, but he was literally blown apart and and survived. Absolutely, he's he's an amazing person. Um, you know, another case, a young Marine uh, in in. Uh, Afghanistan and the Kandahar, you know, sort of the birthplace of the Taliban, and they're manning an overwatch position on top of a roof on, on their little makeshift base, and a, and a uh, grenade gets thrown on top of the rooftop, and he jumps on top of it to try to save his friend, 
And, uh, you know, he, he was hurt so badly that I don't think many people thought he would survive, but it was miraculous that he survived. But he had to go through more than 40 operations to put himself back together. And, uh, and it really excruciating pain. You know, you're doped up on a lot of pain medication. You're having hallucinations. He, he, he hallucinated that he saw his own burial and none of his, uh, Marine friends came to see him because they were mad at him for leaving them in, in Afghanistan. Uh, if you can imagine that, but this, you know, so this, this young man, you know, who could have been totally embittered by this, uh, experience really found his meaning in life, uh, and has become a motivational speaker. You, you've talked to him. He's just a, a really, uh, inspiring person. And, um, has a Twitter handle, chicks dug, dig scars, <laughs> you know, <laughs> has a sense of humor, but he's almost like a warrior philosopher. And, and he, so he took the worst, the worst day of his life and he made it life changing. And, uh, just an amazing, amazing young man. I, I, you know, to our audience out there, as I mentioned, we we're, we we're talking with James Kitfield. The book is in the company of heroes. I could, I can't recommend highly enough that you uh, go out and read these stories. These, and and I know that sooner or later there's going to be a woman that's going to receive the Medal of Honor, and it's 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 going to be the same thing. They're just they just go above and beyond whatever it is, and they and they never ever give up. I can't. I, you know, exactly. I, I, go ahead. Sorry. No, I'm I'm just going. I'm looking at the names on the list here. You know, and I'm, and and. I can't even, you know, I, I don't even know where I want to go first because they're all such just fantastic stories. I'm, I'm going to ask you uh, while I'm going to go on here for a minute about Kyle White and in, in a second. And uh, but there are 25 stories in the book about Medal of Honor recipients. And, um, you know, mo- luckily, it seems like most of them survived. Uh, some of them did not. But I, I, I wanted to ask you about Kyle White. So Kyle White was um, with a unit in, again, one of these units I talked about in the, in the Hindu, deep in the Hindu Kush. Um, they go into a village late at, uh, at night and, and camp out, and they're supposed to meet with the elders the next morning uh, to, to do outreach, like which is what their mission really was, was try to sort of gain the, at least if the trust of these uh, mountain villages. So they would be told when the Taliban was lurking around and uh, something didn't feel right. They were, the, the, the meeting uh, kept getting pushed back and pushed back. And when it finally happened, almost every man of fighting age showed up and, and they started hearing strange, uh, strange uh, commands on the radio in a language that even their interpreters didn't understand. So something didn't feel right. So they exited this village and were walking back a single file through on this goat trail trying to get home. And they go to an, a, a part named Ambush Alley because it's famous for, for the Taliban liking to ambush people there. And indeed, they do get ambushed. He gets knocked out by an RPG. And when he awakens, almost his whole unit uh, has disappeared. He doesn't know where what happened to them. Um, but he and a couple of Afghans and a couple of the wounded, uh, Americans are the only people left on this ridge line. And he helps save one person. Um, he, he treats his wounds. He's, he's fighting off the enemy. And, um, if it wasn't for him, you know, everyone who was left in that mountain would have died. 
uh, and he's calling, and finally he's calling in, uh, you know, airstrikes, et cetera. And, and quite famously, almost every commander in, in Afghanistan was on the radio and that listened to this young trooper who I think was, you know, early twenties at the time was just managing this fight all on his own. Um, and he was the last person to, uh, the last person to, I mean, he made sure that they evacuated everyone else besides himself. And finally, uh, he was the last man off that mountain and uh, saved a lot of lives in the, in the process. Wow. Just, it's, it's just, it's awesome. I, 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 I know that's not the right word, but it's just, uh, whew, you know, what these people can do. Um, your last your last story in the book is about Army Sergeant First Class uh, Thomas Payne, and you call that chapter "Last Man Out." Why is that? So uh, Sergeant Payne was a member of the Ranger Regiment, who fam- fam- did you know famously fought in so many battles in these wars, especially uh, well in both Iraq and Afghanistan. But he's um, this, he's involved in the the fight to, uh, against the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. So he was the most recent and the last, and chronologically the last Medal of Honor recipient when, this, when I wrote this book, which is, uh, you know, I finished last end of last year. So um, so they, are, they get word that ISIS is going to execute these hostages, uh, eight, more than 80 hostages, Kurdish, uh, most of them Kurdish uh, military types and, and, and Kurdish civilians, and they're digging the, the ISIS is already they're seeing the, the they're digging the graves outside the prison where they're going to shoot them and execute them, which is their sort of brand, if you will. And they launch a very uh, dangerous hostage rescue mission. And during that mission, um, they lose you know, Thomas Paine lost one of his uh, lost one of his uh, you know colleagues. But uh, the the prison is burning. Uh, it gets lit on fire during this firefight, trying to rescue the hostages. And he has the bolt cutter, so he runs into under machine gun fire. They're firing. ISIS is firing from within the prison. He you know he goes under machine gun fire uh, three times into a burning building where the smoke is so deep that it, it's so dense it's about knee high that you could get a breath. And three times he goes back in there to try to get open this door under fire, and eventually actually does do that, and is able to then usher out many of the the hostages were, were so scared because there was still an ongoing firefight inside the building and it's burning, and he had to basically you know bodily sort of get them out of there, and they uh, they rescued all eighty hostages, and uh, and uh, it was just an amazing thing to to, to hear how this this. This unassuming, not very big guy. A lot of these guys, you, you think big hulking guys, and they're not. They're, they're wiry types frequently. But um, he just, you know, when he's telling me this story, and I was, I was just, I couldn't imagine what it would be like to, to be him and to decide not once, not twice, but three times to run down a hall while you're getting machine gun shot at you and into a burning building that you know it's about to collapse at any moment. Uh, and to, to, to save strangers. And that's what he did. And, uh, yeah, it's an inspiring story, but it was harrowing as well. I, I, every one of these, as I mentioned earlier on, <laughs> the hair on my neck standing straight up going, why, why? You know, it's like watching a movie. Don't go in there. <laughs> right. <laughs> because it's not going to be good for you. Um, what would you say would be one common trait that all of these, these, uh, men had? In fact, most of them, as you mentioned, were, were, were fairly young. 
Right. So the, there is a selflessness in all of these stories that uh, when it came right down to it, um, they were willing to sacrifice their lives to save the lives of their fellow service members and brothers in arms. And that is that comes through in literally, I think, every one of these stories. Um, you know, they could have taken the easy way out, to, and, and no one would have thought less of them. Because some of these things were, you know, like I said, as, as stark as jumping on a grave knowing you're going to die. Um, or going back up on a mountain when you know it's a suicide mission. Um, but they did it, and they did it because they valued the lives of their colleagues and the creed that you that you you know you leave no man behind more than their own lives. And that's a that's a common thread that comes through all these stories. And that's uh, you know that's the inspiring part. I think that uh, we we have such a you know this 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 force of volunteers that we sent to fight these wars. Uh, as, are as good as any force we've ever fielded in our country's history. Uh, and each one of them volunteered for, for duty. They weren't drafted. They didn't have to do it, but they volunteered to do it. No, I mean, they, so many of them were on their fifth, sixth, seventh, ninth tours. Um, granted, they're not a year long, but they're, you know, still just a, a psychological buildup to going back into combat is, is just, uh, is, is, so foreign to my thinking. I mean, there wasn't any way you were going to get me to go back to go back to Vietnam, um, and they keep yeah, going back. That, you know, that's and that's you know, we, that was one of the, the you know, the military would never go back on the all volunteer force. But one of the repercussions of having a fairly small volunteer force that fought our longest wars was they did have to go back and back and back and back. And uh, each time, you know, with studies have shown you, you, your post, your, your likelihood of having post-traumatic stress issues goes up. And it's also very tough on families to go through that again and again and again. Um, so that was one of the detriments of having an all-volunteer force that was relatively small that we never reinforced with a with an all-around draft. Now the military would tell you that the fact that they're volunteers is why they're so good. You know, it's a professional force. But uh, it, it did have some some drawbacks in the sense that we had to send it back to so many times, and that and that you know they suffered for that. I I, I can't imagine. I mean, I know it. Uh, you know, the, the draft supposedly you know went, went after everybody, and we know that didn't necessarily work out quite evenly. But you know, they weren't professional. They just you know, okay, I'm going to be out in two years, or I'm going to be out in you know sixty days, or whatever it might be, and. You know, the politicians couldn't stand up under the pressure of the people at home saying, no, 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 not my son. And, uh, you know, right now you're talking about an, an elite fighting force um, that, that's from all over the country. And, and, and that's, a, that's a great thing I, I, I liked about the military is you got to meet people from everywhere. And, you know, you'd never would have, you know, I'm from New Jersey originally, and I never would have hung out with people from Mississippi or Texas or or Kansas or California, if I hadn't gone into the service, I would have known nothing about that part of the world. That's right, and that's and that's one of the that's one of the beauties of of military service is that you do you are thrown together, um, you know, with people who you would never normally associate with or even have a chance to meet. Um, and I, I found that to be one of the most ennobling things about military service. Um, and I think, you know, we, we, we lose something when we don't have that. But, um, yeah, like I said, the military, you know, politicians were not anxious to, 
make a tough decision on reinstating the draft, and the, and the military didn't want it because they had these these really good volunteers who are professionals who stay along around a lot longer. And for a high tech military, um, that's that that's what you that's preferable than having draftees who don't really want to be there. Can I can I read you a, a quote from David Bolavia, who's one of the Medal of Honor recipients in here? Sure, absolutely. Um, so he, he he this stuck out to me because it gets to this partisanship that we're experiencing this country now, and how these stories none of that comes through. And he says, um, "Let's see if I can find the exact quote." He said, "There's a million plus reasons why Americans are divided." Right now and throughout our history, we've always disagreed and dissented, but we always found a way to put our differences aside and focus on what's best for the nation when it counted most. He's talking about the Army here. We don't care if your dad died and left you millions of dollars or not. I personally never cared what God a soldier um, worshipped, what color they were, or who they loved. If someone is willing to get shot at for me and my buddy, I will lead or follow you anywhere. And I think that's that's pretty pretty reflective of the values these guys put on on the teamwork and the and the, the bonds of friendship and and uh brothers in arms that form and uh, no one's asking what party you're from um they're they're a team and they'll live they'll they'll literally die for each other and that's that's something you don't see very often in american society anymore no, you don't. And I'm, unfortunately, we are coming up against the clock, so I want to make sure I get this out one more time. James Kitfield, the book is In the Company of Heroes, the inspiring stories of Medal of Honor recipients from America's longest wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, James, I want to thank you very much for your time today. I encourage people to go out and buy this book. I think you're going to be really impressed with the kind of men and women that we've got in today's military. Thanks for having me on. Thank you very much. All right, folks, we've had another Veterans Radio in the can, as they say. And uh, next week, we're going to be talking about helicopter pilots, one of my favorite topics, of course. And the the book for that one is going to be, actually, he's a Chinook pilot. And it's, the name of the book is Chariots in the Sky. It's a story of U.S. assault helicopter pilots at war in Vietnam. Larry Frieden, Freeland is the writer of that, of that one. And so he's going to be on the program uh, next week, and we're going to be... I know you guys hate it when I start talking about helicopters and so forth, but that's uh, that's what we're going to be talking about then. Uh, at the end of the month, we're going to be doing our benefits program, so if you have any questions uh, to ask our experts on either uh, VA hospital care or disability payments, this is your opportunity. So that will be the last Sunday of uh, October. So keep an eye out for that. If you have questions, send them to me at Dale at Veterans Radio. You can always follow us on uh, Facebook. Twitter, Instagram, all of our programs are archived on veteransradio.net. And there are many, many of our programs that are now being podcast on Blog Talk Radio. So we encourage you to go out and listen to those. And to please support Veterans Radio if you can. We don't care how much. It all just keeps us on the air for a little bit longer. We're coming up on our 18th anniversary uh, in November. And we want to make sure that you are there. So until next week, this is Dale Throneberry. You are dismissed.
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.